Welcome to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Survive and Thrive, a podcast co-hosted by Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and Courtney Nordrum, Regulatory Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe. This season on Survive and Thrive, we're talking about compliance disasters, which befell companies because they weren't looking at the right clues, had their collective heads in the sand, or did not expect the unexpected. If you want to know how to prepare for and avoid disasters from the compliance perspective, this podcast series is the podcast series for you. Survive and thrive. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the newest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Survive and Thrive, a podcast where we unpack compliance crisis and disasters, walk you through all the red flags which appear and give you lessons learned going forward. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Courtney Nordrum, Regulatory Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe. This season on Survive and Thrive, we're talking about compliance disasters. They're the unpleasant situations that companies get themselves into because they weren't looking at the right clues, they hadn't yet figured out how to expect the unexpected, or they had their collective heads in the sand. Today's episode is about surviving a joint venture and the fun that happens when two international companies combine governance. Uh, Courtney, uh, I wanted to do this uh, episode because it's the one I think that really shows how compliance has to work with the business and that you and I would like to have not simply a seat at the table, but be in on all of the decisions, but be aware of what's going on so that we can be prepared when the CEO turns and points his finger and says, are we good to go, Courtney? Um, In the area of joint ventures, uh, the FCPA world is literally littered with enforcement actions of companies which came to grief through international enforcement, uh, excuse me, international joint ventures. The problem usually starts because of the unique structure of a joint venture, which requires the integration of disparate company cultures. This is compounded when you have your uh, proposed partner be a foreign government or a state-owned enterprise. A joint venture creates new sets of compliance risks for companies that are subject to the FCPA. Obviously, a joint venture, by definition, uh, has, you have less control. A lot of these can be addressed in the formation, but other problems may arise uh, like the following. Uh, you're sitting in your office. Uh, one afternoon, you get a call from your CEO. Uh, he's just gotten back from China and he says, hey, Courtney, I'd love to talk to you. Do you have a few minutes? And you, of course, have a few minutes. And so you trundle on down to his office and he tells you he has found the most connected person and company for your company to joint venture with in China. This partner is highly sought by several U.S. companies, so you're going to have to move quickly. In fact, uh, he's decided this, 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 and it's a guy. This guy is his guy. And um, he'd like to be in Singapore in two weeks to close the deal in writing, but he's really hand shook on it. So uh, in his mind, it's, it's pretty much closed. So uh, with that fact pattern and scenario, what steps can you take uh, to protect your company after you've done the famous Courtney in the pillow yell? I was going to say, first I grab the pillow. No, first I say to the CEO, hey, dude, um, you know how we talked about earlier is better? This is one of those cases where earlier is better. <laughs> Bring me in earlier so that I don't have to do d- diligence on um, 
a, a joint venture in two weeks. But after I get off of my soapbox on that, I really want to um, have a conversation with him. Again, we're saying him only because it's easy, not because we think CEOs have to be men. Um, I'm going to have a conversation with him that focuses on what the expectations are for what I need to handle. So I don't suggest allowing the business to tell you what you can and cannot dig into, but basically setting the ditches on what other areas are handling and what compliance needs to handle. I'm going to, I always have in my back pocket a standard questionnaire for M&A due diligence. It is, I think, last check, 130 questions. So I go to that, I pull out the irrelevant questions, and I send that to whoever's running the JV project. So a project manager, there's usually a point person um, who makes the meetings, takes the notes, gets the data site set up. So I'm going to get that off to the potential uh, joint venture partner as soon as I can, because I want to know not only what their answers are, but how they answer. Then I'm going to go and brief my team. So normally when we're doing M&A, when we're doing this kind of work, I like to bring in at least a couple members of my team because particularly on this condensed timeline, we're gonna need a lot of people looking through a lot of stuff and that takes bodies and, and eyes. So I'm gonna brief my team on what's happening and what I need from them. Um, so, go ahead. so now um, after you've, you've done that sort of internal laid the groundwork, um, you might call your outside counsel. Now, because uh, you and your company are diverse, your lead outside counsel is female. And it's someone you've worked with in the past. She has helped you in tight situations before. Uh, you explain to her what has come up and that she, you would like to have her and her full investigative team on a call the next day at noon. What uh, do you do to prepare for that call? And how do you help think through moving forward with her assistance uh, from that point, starting with the call? So I'm going to create a list of, I'm going to take a notebook and I'm going to put a line down the middle. I'm going to decide what council is going to do and what I'm going to do. Because we have two weeks, that's 10 business days. And China is on basically an opposite time schedule than we are. Meaning we're going to lose at least a day between when we're connecting with them and they're connecting back with us. I want to make sure everybody knows what's what the expectations are. So I'm going to tell counsel right away, hey, friend, <laughs> we're going to do a joint venture. Here's what I need from you. I am going to ask her to be responsible for drafting any agreements or any representations and warranties that have to do with compliance. I'm going to need her to advise on government approvals and any registration and licensing that we may need. I don't have a ton of experience with joint ventures in China, not something that I've had to deal with. So I don't know what I don't know, and I'm going to make that her job to figure out what I don't know. And then also, I'm, I'm going to ask her and her investigation team to do a deep dive into 
both the company, the target company, as well as the board and executive leadership, particularly in the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, we want to make sure that we're being very sensitive to any anti-corruption, anti-bribery risks. Additionally, in China, you've got state-owned enterprises all over the place, and pretty much anyone could be acting on behalf of the government. Um, and so there are additional risks with that, and I want to know what we're getting into. So those are going to be kind of the big pieces. I'm also going to ask her to engage a third party to do boots on the ground due diligence. I'm allergic to shellfish, so me traveling in Asia is really challenging, and I'm always afraid I'm going to die. Um, so... It is so much easier to find a trusted third party, either in country or nearby that you can go to, to say, here's the due diligence I need. Here's the pictures I need. Here's the documentation I need. Here's who you need to talk to, to make sure that the organization that you're partnering with, that you're building this joint venture with, meets the standards that you have for your company. And not only your regulatory standards, but your ethical standards. There are some um, companies on earth that don't provide bathrooms or that engage children to work. We wanna make sure that we are staying far, far away from those concerns. And we need someone physically present to go walk through the buildings to make sure that that's the case. For oh, On the in-house side, I'm gonna say, my team's going to do all of the normal diligence we would do. So we're going to run our questionnaire. We're going to hold interviews. We're going to have meetings. We're going to review all of the evidence and all of the documents provided. And we're going to put that all together in a summary readout for not only the CEO, the C-suite, and the board, but for probably our insurers and our outside counsel and anyone else who wants to weigh in. We're going to identify the compliance risks from the inside. I'm also going to huddle up the JV team that we've established internally and talk to them about what they can and can't do through the diligence. So there are things that we can't disclose. There are things that they shouldn't disclose. Things we can ask about, things we can't, and what we can plan for and when. This is an antitrust is really the big issue here, but we would expect the joint venture partner to also be doing diligence on us at this time. And so I wanna make it really clear to the team that not only are we performing diligence, we're being scrutinized and here's what we can share and what we can't share. So before we get into breaking down some of the next steps, I was wondering if you could give some thoughts on why you feel it's important to have a go-to lawyer or lawyers that you can pick up the phone probably any time of day or night. And if, if not say, Hey, I have a problem, at least say that you can reach out for counsel and guidance and know that basically they have your back. What does that mean to you as an in-house practitioner? It is invaluable. Uh, as a chief compliance officer, I know a lot of things, but I don't know everything. Nobody does. And so having the uh, deep bench of outside counsel to be able to text, call, email, and say, hey, 
can I bounce something off of you? Or this didn't smell right. Can I run something by you? I'm not sure. It's really, really important for me to be able to have that outside view on what's happening. So as an organization, I think of it as legal's job is to protect the organization from everything on the outside. Compliance's job is to protect the world from the organization. And outside counsel has both of those as their scope when they're advising us in compliance. So they know we want to protect the organization, but they know that our first duty is to following the law and the rules. And so it's really, really, uh, it, it's one of the main tools in my bag as far as where do I go when I don't have the answer? I talk to outside counsel probably several times a month. And depending on the area of compliance or, or regulatory specialty I need, I go to different um, attorneys. But the advice they give is absolutely invaluable to me being able to do my job. So now you've gone to sleep, uh, probably got about 90 to 120 minutes of sleep uh, thinking about this, uh, but you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed the next day for your meeting with your outside counsel, and, and it's a con call. Uh, so uh, you kick off the meeting. What are some of the steps that you would either expect your outside counsel to suggest they, they provide, or what would you expect, uh, to, or what would you tell them that you expect them to provide? So it's going to be hopefully some follow-up from the day before. Because of the timeline, I'm likely going to be emailing and, and texting and everything else back and forth between the conversation yesterday and today. But I would reiterate that my expectations are that they're going to do this deep dive investigation and they're going to arrange for immediate boots on the ground. The and On top of those expectations, I would ex not expect... I would not be surprised if outside counsel also went above and beyond and said, we've contacted our branch in Singapore, Hong Kong, somewhere nearby. We have people on standby there to draft anything you need to draft. If there are any issues that come up from a regulatory perspective, I would assume that they are addressing that as well as bringing it to our attention. So it's really one of those things where I'm going to expect them to do just as much legwork as my team is doing. And, and most importantly, I'm going to expect them to raise red flags immediately and bring them to my attention so I can bring them to the attention of everyone else. Red flags don't always kill a deal, but sunlight sanitizes. So we want to make sure that if there are issues, whether from a business perspective, ethics, compliance, that we know about them so that we can protect our organization from those issues, as well as make sure that we're following all of the laws. Uh, you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier about the joint venture agreement itself. Uh, they, are there any uh, basic standards that you would mention in to your outside counsel that you would want in your joint venture agreement? So I'm going to want reps and warranties. So representation and warranties 
on their compliance with all laws and, and privacy regulations. So I'm going to tell outside, outside counsel that I basically, for the non-lawyers, need the joint venture partner to pinky swear that they're following all of the rules and laws. And if they, it turns out that they weren't, that there's going to be some sort of compensatory structure. There's going to be a way for us to get our money back, for us to end the joint venture. Something happens where if we find out that they weren't following the rules and they failed to disclose that, that we have a way to avoid risk as a company. I'm also going to hope, 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 that we have enough leverage in this joint venture deal that we get to speak to the controlling jurisdiction and controlling law because as the the compliance officer i'm going to want to know what laws are going to apply when and how um and so even if it's just for the contract and the contract interpretation i get more comfort if i'm familiar with the laws of the jurisdiction that the contract is written in so you mentioned uh, also a little bit earlier that typically in any sort of business venture, whether it be an M&A, whether it be a teaming agreement, whether it be a joint venture, there's a, a project manager or a business side point person. Uh, yep. Would you be able to sit down and explain to them uh, the need for a business justification and how, although this deal is moving very, very quickly and the CEO wants to do it, why it's so critical to have for your documentation if a regulator comes knocking the business justification? Absolutely. I think that anyone put in charge of a project of this magnitude would know that, but in in the slim chance that they don't, there's definitely a conversation to be had that says, I need you to put on paper why this is happening, what we're doing, the business justification, how it falls into our quarterly or yearly plan. And so that if we are ever investigated, we have this as documentation that this was a calculated business move. I also think that it's important for compliance and the head of the, the project as a whole to just have an open line of communication. So as compliance officers, we would always ask that we have go, no-go decision-making on M&A, which would include joint ventures in my head. Um, and so at some point, that's a conversation that you, want to, that you want to have with your leadership at your organization. You want to make it clear that as the compliance officer, there are some deal killers and you need to be given the power to kill a deal because some deals just don't need to get done that badly. You, you mentioned some potential financial protections. Uh, you mentioned reps and warranties and perhaps a way to get out of the joint venture uh, mm -hmm. uh, if you have to, but are there any other clarifications you'd want to write into the joint venture agreement more, more generally around financial protections? So this is where I'm going to rely on outside counsel um, and, and their expertise. Well, I know that I'm going to want generally financial protections for the organization. I'm going to want the contract to speak to which party is responsible for funding compliance, who's funding legal liabilities, indemnity, limitations on liabilities, all of those things. 
I'll be honest, I don't know how deep most compliance people get into the world of M&A and joint venture contracting. So the most likely scenario is that I'm going to call up my outside counsel and say, I need you to do these things and make it pretty in the contract. And they understand that because over the last couple of years, they've learned to speak Courtney, or at least have some sort of interpreter that helps them translate uh, compliance officer or Courtney to, to legal counsel speak. So they understand that fundamentally, I'm going to say, if they're not compliant, it's going to cost them or we can break this deal. The reps and warranties, I'm going to want to be hands-on with that specifically because I'm not only going to want general reps and warranties, I'm going to want reps and warranties in each area of the business that we might enter. And if I'm feeling really, really spicy, I'm probably going to push to have control of compliance for the entire joint venture if I can. Because while it may be more work and most certainly will be challenging, I will have a full understanding of what's happening and be able to control what's happening from a compliance perspective. And that gives me more peace of mind than allowing someone else to have part of our fate as an organization in their hands. So how about monitoring of the joint venture going forward? We haven't signed the contract yet, but you can see the train is rolling and it's picking up speed and it's probably not going to stop before your CEO gets to Singapore. Can you help us think through what you would need or a compliance officer would need to do to prepare for ongoing monitoring and then in actually engaging in that uh, after the contract is signed? Yeah, so one of the things I found in the M&A space is that even when you're creating an, a new company, a new venture, most of the employees that are going to be working and doing the work are already employees of one or the other company. And so treat it like M&A in that have a governance and integration plan. So when you're building out where you're going and what this is going to look like, know that this is the governance we need to implement. This is what this has to look like. And then build out an integration plan similar to how you would for M&A. This is how we're going to onboard employees into this. This is how we're going to train them. Yes, they may already be getting your compliance and ethics training, but make sure that you have spoken directly to what the joint venture does. Also understand that what the governance and compliance is going to look like may differ from governance or compliance at either of the partner companies that, that form the joint venture. And so you need to clarify who's going to be responsible for what. Normally compliance, I, I think sits as a second line of defense. So I'm thinking of the IIA's three lines of defense model. So compliance usually sits in the second line of defense. With this kind of joint venture going in in two weeks, I would push for, I don't want to call it a first line, but line 1.5 of defense, making sure that the frontline 
operators and, and employees of this venture who I'm assuming are now going to be doing at least some of their work for this new joint venture, understand their obligations, the management understands the obligations, and then it's we've gone through training to explain the differences between their obligations for their original company and what it means to be part of this joint venture. Joint ventures can be basically exist as, I don't wanna call it a shell because it's not a shell, but exist just to put money somewhere when two companies are working together, or you can create a whole new business and, and line of business that neither of you have been in before. So because there's that entire spread of ways joint ventures could be structured, I'm going to want to babysit a little more than I normally would. That was a long answer to say I'm going to babysit. So one of the themes that I wanted us to explore in this podcast, in this episode rather, are that not that you're going to get a panic call uh, late in the day, but that uh, compliance works uh, to facilitate business and help the company do business. And one of the key themes for me has been that even with this short a time frame, there are concrete steps you can take uh, to not only protect the organization, but help the joint venture uh, do business ethically and hopefully profitably. But I was wondering if there are maybe two or three key lessons learned that uh, you'd like to sum up with. I think always being prepared is the first lesson. So the fact that I have a backpack full of tools for M&A, I've got my questionnaire already. I've got uh, example readouts. I've got a team who understands M&A and what we're looking for, as well as skeleton uh, implementation and integration plans means that even with two weeks, I don't feel like someone has kicked me in the stomach. I, yes, that is a very fast timeline. And yes, I would like someone to give me 10 times as many days to get this done. But I've already got the things built that I just have to implement them and use the tools I already have. So it's a luxury to be able to look past next week in compliance. We never have the resources we want. Sometimes people don't have the resources they need. But if you can put together a toolkit that you can rely upon when the timing is condensed, that's going to be really, really helpful because then you can just grab your hammer and grab your screwdriver and use them instead of having to go to the hardware store, research what kind of hammer you need, research what kind of screwdriver you need, ask the guy, ask your mom, ask your dad, ask everyone what they think. No, you've already got a built. You just have to use it. The second lesson learned is to build a cadence with your business, your CEO, your executive leadership that keeps you in the loop. So we act as trusted business advisors who happen to know a lot about compliance and ethics. I'm a business person who knows about compliance and legal requirements. Because of that, I have credibility when speaking to the business. You have to know what language they speak, you have to know what they understand, and you have to know what their concerns are. So in a for-profit business, your concern is going to be 
Are we going to lose money? Is this going to cost me money? <laughs> what are all of the money things are, are you going to do, Courtney? Are you going <laughs> to say I can't do something? Are you going to tell me I have to do it in a different way? And so if you can come to the table and make it clear that you're business savvy, as well as proactively addressing concerns, then it's going to build your credibility. Also, do not be a panic button. Do not raise a red flag unless you need to raise a red flag. It Being a panic button to me is the boy who cried wolf. You don't get that many opportunities to actually be raise that red flag and have it be taken really seriously. So be prepared to do it and, and say no go if that is needed, but also know that you're going to have to be flexible and in some cases take a less than desirable, uh, take your lumps kind of and, and get a less desirable situation and then just have to fix it and, and do with it what you can. I'm never saying you operate in any way against the law or act unethically, but sometimes you're going to get things that aren't bright and shiny. And it's your job to try and polish and spit shine as best you can. So Courtney, I'd like to give a lesson learned from our friend Mark Twain. And it's a quote that he gave, which says it's, it is wiser to find out than suppose. And what I'd like to use that to end uh, this podcast with is you never stop engaging in due diligence. You never stop communicating learning and finding out and uh, obtaining information and data is a two-way street. It is both inbound and outbound. And you've articulated some great steps to think through not only how do you prepare for the unexpected, when the unexpected hits, what do you do? Because you have prepared, so it's not unexpected. And then three, that process lays the foundation for you to continue to have a successful business relationship going forward. So uh, with that, you want to take us home? Sure. Uh, thanks for joining us for this episode. Please join us again for our next episode of Survive and Thrive. I'm Courtney Nordrum. And I'm Tom Fox. Thanks so much for joining us. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast? Do you have an idea which you think would be helpful to the compliance community? Do you have a great story to tell? If any of these are true, why don't you start a podcast and put it on the Compliance Podcast Network? I have partnered with One Stone Creative to create a end-to-end -end solution for you to tell your story on the Compliance Podcast Network. If you have questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And more importantly, I hope you will tell your story with your podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network.